Shop Maniacs. You're listening to the Shop Talk Show. New intro. What do you think, Chris? I'm just. <laughs> yeah. I was inspired by the Super Mario Brothers Super Show uh, a little bit. So maybe maybe ends can, can put on a, a nice little 8 bit track. Sounds good. Thanks for keeping it fresh. Always. Just just trying. Trying to bring energy on this, the 500 and nunjada nunjada episode of the Chef Talk yeah. Show. 532. Pretty cool. Is there any errata? We did mention that this, uh, in the great Discord chatter we always get. We, we, had, we had mentioned that um, the spoons theory, and I was kind of laughing about or almost dunking on the idea that I was like, how did that become like a metaphor for energy? Like right. of all the things in the world, how did that particular noun become the object of them? We said we said talking about it, I think like a little bit last time, but it was like, uh, how did that happen? Uh, and uh, there is some like background, right? Like it was written by like disability advocate. Uh, um, or, or just somebody with disabilities, I should say. I don't know if they're an advocate. They were talking to but, their friend at a restaurant, and they're like, yeah. and they finally like had this epiphany of how to explain it. We're talking about Christine uh, Miserandio. Miserandio, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like the essay is great. It's a PDF, which is great. But that's you know, it was written, written in like 2003, and I kind of you know don't blame them. I guess you know maybe they wanted a fancy layout for the essay. The essay is easy to find, and it was kind of like you know they had this epiphany and they're grabbing spoons from the table at the restaurant and then explaining that each little action they take, you know, one spoon goes away. Mm-hmm. And then when you're out of spoons, you're out of spoons. Yeah. Was the point. So it was funny because I feel like, it, and this isn't unique to developers. I'm sure scientists, all kinds of people do this is you're at the, you're at a restaurant and you got to explain something and you just grab anything around you. Yeah. You know? yeah the, the sugar packet is the, uh, yeah. is the house and the, the yeah. Blue, uh, whatever fake sugar is the car. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. But those, those, you know, they tend to be actually really bad analogies and you can barely get through what you're explaining. Whereas just, just the spoons was the, was the perfect thing. So it has a very specific history. It has a person you can credit it's all, it's all very trace backable to the disability kind of community. Yeah. And then I think, I think it was such a decent metaphor <laughs> like because metaphors tend to just crap out and be bad and and uh just in general but like i think it was like a decent enough metaphor i think like mental health communities kind of picked it up and um, yeah so so it's just kind of this general parlance for i'm out of spoons i'm out of mental physical energy to deal mm-hmm. with this you know so uh, yeah, which is it ends up kind of working for everybody because everybody does have a limit of how much stuff that they can take on, whether you have chronic illness or not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe you know it's more it's more apt if you do, but even if you don't, there's only so much of yourself that can go around. So spoons, it is. I've been hitting that very much in the like this summer. We did a big you know big push on Luro. It's like super close to. Not everybody super close to like a first round of, of kind of uh, what do we call them design partners. You don't call them beta customer beta users anymore, Chris. That's a uh, just want to oh, update really? you on the startup lifestyle. Okay, we're called they're called design partners now because that's that's better. 
Uh, so you have design partners. Uh, so unpaid. first round, yeah, <laughs> unpaid design partners. Uh, so anyway, we're we're like uh, trying to like nail that down, but but we're really close, and like the environments are mostly all set up. We're just kind of doing like a last you know pre-flight kind of stuff right now, and so. Um, but anyway, it's exciting, but it's also like somewhat terrifying, but it, all this energy has gone into that for me. And like, I've had to like, I quit a podcast, I quit my D and D group or like kind of stepping back from all this stuff. I quit, like just gave up on like a bunch of books. I was like, I'm not reading that garbage. So <laughs> just a whole bunch of stuff is just like flying out the window for me. Cause I'm out of spoons. I feel like that's the best way to put it. Right. 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 I'm not, I feel like you got to be protective of it too. You know, I've, I've had moments in the past where I've had to step away from something to only to have the people involved be like, yeah, I totally understand. But like, why do you have to officially step away? Can't you just like in practice step away, but you know, your name's still on the, board or whatever like right, just right. come you're when you have time member? but you're yeah and like i don't sometimes i feel like that doesn't work like you have to make you have to make it official you have to pull your name off the board in order otherwise it's still there it's otherwise it's taking like a quarter spoon or something you can't you can't can't bend a spoon in half it becomes very <laughs> useless if you bend a spoon in half or either long ways or 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 down the middle which would be super difficult so uh i just you can't you can't really like crunch up a spoon and give just a half a spoon to something i feel like when it's when it's something you're doing it's a whole spoon you know like a, a thread if we want to get into computer talk it's a it's a worker thread that runs in your brain and your brain has a certain amount of cpu and uh central processing unit power and so like you you have a certain amount of power in spinning up a new job a new side project a new something hustle family stuff injuries you know body injuries backs going out etc like all that is a thread right that's that's a something that occupies a part of your brain boom so yeah yep I, I was going to start doing, I really like a part of me wants to do Twitch, right? <laughs> like stream on Twitch. And I just, I was like, I did like three of them this summer and I was like, I don't know. What am I doing? I, I just don't like, this is too much stuff. You know, this is, even though I had just like finished something, it was just like, this is just one too many spoons. So yeah, it might I, be part of your personality that if anything falls off that it's like, Ooh, an opening. I shall fill it. That is my personality, and I'm trying to reject all <laughs> <laughs> all gains I've made. Uh, but it's it's hard, though. You know, it's like when you feel like a when you thrive on feeling productive. You know, that's a hard uh, place to be. I read Brad Frost uh, recommended a book to me called "Do Nothing," which is you know, uh, it's not it's different than the book "How to Do Nothing," which is kind of like a interesting anti-capitalist uh uh book uh but this is more just kind of like hey like there's there's downsides of being productive all the time and it's usually your mental health and so like just just do nothing enjoy boredom enjoy you know having nothing to do on your calendar you know like just enjoy that so yeah it was a very good book i'll probably read it 10 times so and i don't reread books so that says a lot so yeah uh, I wanted to, this is, it's just industry news that's not particularly new, but I wanted to t talk about a little bit. You, let's say you're on a phone, you know, I think, and I, this is, I'm, I think we're specifically talking about 
iOS, but I think it happens. It's just is a little bit of a different story on Android, but I think there's some similarities. So you're in an app like Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or something that we all spend a lot of time in, and you click a link, and sometimes you know something like Instagram, you know, there's not like a ton of links, but there are if they're in a profile or something, and you know, you know the whole story. But it tends not to, by default, kick you out to your browser of choice on that platform. But on iOS, famously, we talk about there's only Safari anyway, right? Mm-hmm. But you can't. It is there's a distinction between like Safari as an app, just the raw app on iOS. Um, And like, that is the same as like, if you open Chrome on iOS, it's really just Safari. It has a little different UI and stuff. I mean, it is a little bit different, but the rendering engine and all that stuff is still Safari. There's a distinction even between that and the browser that opens within an app. So I think when you're building an iOS app, there's a, you know, a way that you can call upon a browser to open up without leaving the app. You're not booted out of the app. You stay in TikTok or whatever, but you're browsing the web all of a sudden, and you and you have some you have some stuff. It's different because you don't have to show, for example, the URL bar. It could just mm-hmm. not be there. It's yep. just showing you the website or whatever. And it turns out these are a lot different. <laughs> I think we've known this in the past. Like there's even little bugs that can show up in those browsers and not the default browsers, which are really tricky to track down, of course, which is just the loudest sigh I can possibly sigh. But it, the story gets worse from there. The problem is that many of these apps, which includes TikTok, Instagram, Facebook Messenger, Facebook itself, and the list goes on a little bit, will have in-app browsers, and those in-app browsers inject stuff onto the websites they visit, like analytics scripts. Like, they literally jack a script onto the page. Like, if you were to visit DaveRupert.com, here comes Facebook jacking a script in there. And these scripts wow. are, like, provably tracking what you click on, That's what you type, intense. all kinds of stuff. Wow. What the hell, right? And it's happening right on, you know, an Apple device who's very busy telling us how secure and amazing they are at preventing this type of thing. So, like, not very, though. That's pretty bad, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's kind and of it's disgusting. it's not just Apple's fault. It's the other companies that are they're actually doing it. And But it's like everybody's at fault here. Who's, and nobody's saying anything. It's so strange. It's like this needs to stop. Yeah. I mean, this is a man-in-the-middle attack. Like Very. Yes, it is. So it is like the fitting definition of somebody arbi- injecting arbitrary JavaScript into your application. <laughs> like. How how do we get here? I guess like yeah, like if you're you know when your your internet provider they can do that too. Like you're on the I don't know you're on your hotel Wi-Fi and they jack in some JavaScript. That's so uncool. AT&T would do that. Uh, Southwest Airlines does that when you get on GoGo InFlight or whatever. Uh, it's it sucks. And then I've seen like a uh, well, it used to be. Roadrunner, Time Warner, Roadrunner, or whatever. But I think a lot of those have like caught flack and and changed, you know, stepped it back a bit. But who knows what they're doing, you know? So, but this is, it's just disgusting. That's kind of wild that they. And, you know, that's on the heels of, of like, 
Facebook being all mad at that ATT or whatever it is, like like uh, Apple forcing apps to say, hey, you know, you have to grant permission to be tracked. And of course, everybody says, no, I don't want to be tracked. And then that harms Facebook's business, which, you know, we have no actual information about how badly it does, but probably does to, to some degree. So they're like, well, we can't get information that way, huh? Why don't we jack in some JavaScript to get some information this way instead? That's what it feels like to me, although they've probably been doing it for for, for forever. But just don't, don't third-party people, don't put JavaScript on my website. If you want to run it on your website, fine, I guess. You know, like, I don't know. It's not like I love, nobody loves that either, but it's like when you're the man in the middle injecting your crap onto my website, it feels so uncool. And it feels like, A, they should stop doing it, and B, Apple should stop, prevent it entirely. And maybe even in-app browsers just shouldn't exist. If you click on a link, go to the browser. Yeah. I mean, hey, playing big tech advocate here, you know, uh, like uh, we're we're trying to make people's lives better. Right. They don't want to leave the app. They want to be in the app. Right. Uh, What is this a situation where these are actually, you know, I saw things. It was like, oh, what we're doing that oopsie doopsie. You know, I didn't we're not doing anything with that data, you know, like. Kind of like, yeah, bud, sure. But like, is this maybe a situation where it's just like a standard click tracker to see how many people use the in-app browser or load a page, how many pages get loaded in the in-app browser? And then, and is it to like track that metric, telemetry it? And it just so happens that now... Now that it's been discovered, security researchers are obviously concerned for for very good reason. But like, is it a situation where like, because we don't know exactly what they're doing with it, that's what's the problem? Or is it because they're doing it at all? Or is it because like, you know, I guess what's the motivation? Why are those scripts on the page? And then why, you know? Yeah, if they uh, came out with a big post that says, yeah, we are doing this. You caught us. But the reason we're doing it is X. I can't and have X somehow be benign or okay. I can't. I just can't see that world. The yeah. reason is building profile information about you for, the, the, you know, the classic. Probably, yeah, right. yeah. I, can't, I mean, what, what what could it be? You know, like oh, we just felt like console dot logging something. You know, like no, you didn't. You know, I don't know. Like what. We just Why is pay? there a code then that tracks clicks? I mean, that's provable. You can see the code doing it. We just paid this guy like seven figures a year uh, to just put it in there. We're doing nothing with it, but we pay we pay this whole team of engineers seven figures each, and uh, we're just we're just we're doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention that when you link to a script like that, it's it's dynamic. It could change every thirty minutes. It could, oh, you know, yeah, it could change. Yeah, it could, external... 1% of them could, yeah, you have to, they have complete control over what gets loaded and when. It's not some static piece of code that. I, w- I would love to know up. how many suddenly changed super quick after this article came out from uh, Felix Krauss or whatever. Mm, Just yeah. like how many, how many are whatever blog posts suddenly were like, or how many of those inept scripts were suddenly nerfed, you know, big time. So, yeah, perhaps. I'd be mega curious. Anyway, what a what a weird world. I wonder too, like, has anyone fired up like Chrome 
iOS Chrome to see what Chrome's doing because it's got some kind of web view and WebKit controller in there. Yeah, well, I'm sure people have. In th- this little, there's a there's a website in AppBrowser.com. You can go there, and it looks pretty well constructed. For example, I have. Um, Apollo dev tools installed. And so when it runs, it's like, ooh, I see that that's, you know, it's doing some kind of watching stuff because the, you know, s- extensions look yeah. like they're doing JavaScript injection too. And I'm like, oh, good catch. You know, it makes me feel like this thing knows what it's doing. I did not analyze every piece of code that this browser does, but it t- looks like it's doing a pretty good job of sniffing out things that are being injected that shouldn't be. Yeah. View dev tools apparently is looking for iframes every like second. So anyway, that's uh putting view dev tools on blast here. Yeah. So, what's going on, buddies? So I spoke at Cascadia JS just down the street from me in Sun yeah. River, Oregon. Nice. It was pretty Back in cool. The conferences, how'd that feel? That, that... Yeah, it was good. I got to kind of open the open the show and kind of set the stage for. I gave my little. The web is good now, but I really spent a lot of time updating it and making it a kind of a fresh experience. It was pretty fun. And it turned out nice. that the second talk was Brian Larue, who's been on the show before from Begin dot com and into the internet and such. Um. He DM'd me, you know, a few weeks before it and was like, hey, I wonder if our talks back to back would are going to make sense, you know, because I'm we're going to be releasing this new framework, new Uh-oh. thing. And, uh, and it kind of did because the one of the ways that I was able to kind of shorten my talk, there are short 25 minute talks was to um, normally the talk. I, I talk about web platform things. Then I talk about like tooling things and how they've both gotten a lot better. And then their powers mm-hmm. combined makes the web a lot better. I'm like. Oh, I have so little time. I'm going to kill all the tooling stuff. Just yeah. talk about web platform stuff. And then I was like, well, that works out nicely because I'll be like, well, Brian's going to talk about a new tool. That's just one example of web tooling and infrastructure and stuff getting better that makes the web better. So what that was, it turns out, was this thing that really did cause some stir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Enhance, Enhance.dev. Yeah. It's a new HTML first meta framework, like almost like a Nuxt or a Next or a SvelteKit or something. But it's like HTML plus web components, which they're kind of doing in their own little way. Uh, but it's not, it's still web components. Um, right. And then there's like state. And then I think they're using utility classes with styling. Um, like a kind of like a almost like tailwind sort of thing. That seems so, like a little bit of an add-on. Um, that would be the thing I'd want to rip out, but that's just me. I guess nothing's making me write tailwind in here, but um, or fake fake tailwind. No, and I saw in the talk he's like, "You want to use SAS or whatever? Just just go ahead." It does seem like a ride along that I don't love either, but hey, whatever. You know, I think the point is like if you do too little there'll be less excitement about what's going on here. Although I would question that a little bit because this looks really actually pretty cool. I guess the, so it's HTML uh, pages, right? Like you just have a pages folder. You have a elements folder, which is your components, your web components, the yep. like custom elements. And then you have an API folder, which is your API routes. And if you name the API and the pages the same, it'll almost like a Astro front matter. It will like, run that script before it runs the page or whatever, or when it builds the page, right? Yeah. 
So there's a bit of a clever structure to your project, and it really is just those three. Pages, elements, API, and you. But you could also have like a, a whatever function, like, or, or you could have like something like you know whatever follow user or something uh, if you wanted. I think as part of your API that that just as long as a page isn't attached to it, uh, or I think even if a page is attached to it, it could go get the page. So yeah. That part of it reminds me of Cloudflare pages. I think it wasn't how you can put you can put like a Cloudflare worker in a folder, and if you name it the same thing, the worker runs at that route in addition to serving the page. Hmm. Well, maybe that's what's going on behind the scenes. Oh no, Brian has a lot of through begin. They have a lot of like cloud DevOps, infrastructure knowledge, cloud yeah. infra tech and know how, and, and I think. To the to the point, like I don't know that any other framework can compete with them on the, that level of integration, you know, except for maybe like, you know, maybe Next, which is like the whole platform is around the framework, you know, or sort yeah, of, yeah. you know. But so a couple other interesting things here. They didn't say bring your own component tree like Astro did. They're not like, oh, use JSX or our own Astro components or view components or whatever. They said, no, use use web components, but not really because they have their own little opinionated way about how you construct uh, a function. They call them whatever, custom element pure functions. They look very simple. Nobody's going to be confused by them, I don't think. But then the way that you use them looks exactly like a custom element like Dave dash Rupert or whatever, right, or right. my dash tabs or something. So something is converting them into a web component and instantiating them automatically for you, which looks pretty cool, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, we kind of did on our YouTube, <laughs> remember YouTube? Uh, we did on our YouTube like a little hello world of a, like three or four different ways to write web components, right? Um, I, I feel like we're using... Um, we use like lit, but we used a couple other ones that are kind of around. Um, and I'm blanking on which ones those were, but um, kind of building off of that video, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, Chris. Uh, but then mm. uh, this seems like a cool, different way to write web components. That's very natural. It's very, um, yeah, just functional componenty. So um, it, it seems cool. I, I'm really curious what people are going to build with it or. You know, every right. framework needs a, a big show, you know, but you could think, use this in that world of where I like, oh, obviously I need HTML includes. That's like a classic thing that's been on my mind for, you know, a couple of decades now. It's like if I'm building a website, I need a way to include a header and a footer. That's yeah. the very basics of it. And then it keeps going from there. And then you start eventually building your entire website from these reusable components. And I need to pass data into them. The more that they style themselves and have their own state and stuff, the better. And this solves for that. It's that. Yeah. Interestingly, another interesting approach to this is it's not a static site generator at all. It only runs on the server. Interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It looks like it easily, not easily, I hate to say that, but it could pre-build into HTML, I would think, but it just chooses not to. Perhaps that's because begin, you know, they're trying to be opinionated here. They're trying to say, I think it's actually a better approach to let a server respond to these requests 
And I think that's interesting. I think we are starting to get to that level where that might be kind of nice. Imagine what if if you if you have to pre-build, all of a sudden that used to be like, oh, that's so cool. Once it's done building, I just deploy these flat files and think how fast that is and cacheable mm-hmm. that is and all that. But that build has to, you know, npm install the universe every single deploy. You know, it's starting to be like, oh, that's slow and wasteful. I'll tell you. A deploy you. of this is just whoop, just a few yeah, little Yeah, t- just like whatever files you had on your local host now just shoot up, you know, and there's no, I, I mean, there's probably some kind of build, but it's very minimal, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, I this is, I, I was thinking, I have like a half-written blog post about the stuff I want from a meta framework, you know, and, and this has a lot of it, like, I think like web component supports kind of up there. I think the page based routes, I think the, the like built in API server is there, you know? Um, and, and to the extent, like even some of my like feelings on like Jamstack are sort of changing. I, I, I love that Jamstack's like, Hey, you're, it's just static files, you know, but man, Jamstack plus a node server that's running your API, like, and I don't have to like, whatever, spin up a, a whole new website or a whole new ecosystem just to just to get a, a little node API server going. Like, I, I kind of, I don't know. I feel like Jamstack needs to evolve to where you can have a node option or a that way, It's just a given. Option. It's just sitting there waiting to be used. Yeah, yeah. it's a button, a one-click button to, like, get up and be like, okay, deploy this actually on node, you know. It's Jamstack, but it's also just on Node, you know? So. I don't think this is even just like an, a little idea. I think that's kind of where things are headed. People are starting to to get into their head like, oh, when I deploy, so many of these infrastructure tools have a runtime available to use at the time the file is requested. It's true of Cloudflare. It's true of Netlify. It's true of Vercel. It's true of all these things, places where people actually use. Mm-hmm. And then along comes Bun, powered by Zig, that says, we're another runtime. We're designed to be cloud first. And people are like, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be more and more of this, like, oh, there's a little runtime available to me always. Hmm. Yeah. What yeah, can I, I do mean, with that? Well, cheap, a lot. Cheap runtimes, yeah. Right, like maybe we can. Maybe the future is these little, you know, just I can do my. I think like the serverless stuff. Jamstack has pushed us into this idea, pretty hard of like serverless. Like we just have these functions that execute once, you know, and you know a lot of these API routes could just also be serverless functions, you know. But then you need the like dance of like making them run on, you know, almost like edge functions or something. Anyway. Um, I think like serverless is awesome, but I think like just maybe these little micro, uh, micro runtimes would be awesome. Micro runtimes—that's gonna—that's the term we use now. Link to me. So <laughs> I like it. I think it's cool. It's one of those. It's almost to be expected. It's like, oh, we swung away from servers, and then people started sensing the swing back to servers. But it's not the same when it swings back. It's a little different. It doesn't mean spin up a EC2 of an uh, entire server. It means little, tiny, lightweight things that do 
just the jobs that we need them to do. And we know what jobs because we're learn we're maturing as an industry. We're understanding what we what we actually need from these servers. We're maturing. I mean, I even in the lifespan of Luro, you know, it's it was on Nellify and then we had some like beefy node things. And it was like, okay, let's go. Let's spin up a node server. But, you know, we're going to spin up more than one, so let's put it on Docker, you know? And so uh, we put it on Docker. Well, guess what? My Docker build times are like 12, 13 minutes, and it's driving me nuts. And it, it takes, you know, 30 minutes to deploy a tiny fix, you know? So I'm looking at different, like, environments. I started playing with Render, you know, .com, which is kind of a new host yeah. platform thing. And what's neat about Render is it, uh, like, it gives you a environment, but then it's like, or, or it says like, okay, what do you want? A node server, great. I'll do a node server. You want a database, great. I'll give you a database. And then it gives you the option to create these render.yaml files, which are probably based on the same stuff that Begin uses, Arc or something like that. But basically, that creates you a YAML file of your environment. So if you ever need to spin up a dev environment or a whatever environment you're one click away like and how cool is that because i don't know you're just in a world where you're like some you have a customer who's like we can we want to pay you a bajillion dollars but we don't want to be on the server that everyone else is on you know because we are yeah corp you're like you're like man, it'd be cool if I could just one click a button and get a new environment for them, like a clean room, you know? Um, so, but if the, then they're like, it has to be hosted on our internal servers. Now you're like, oh, I wish I had a Docker. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's life, but you know. So they do data. Very cool. I wonder what, if that's the, still the kind of the, I don't know, the secret sauce to, to money. I think, I think once, you have customer live data on there, on a server somewhere, you're sort of stuck, right? Like, I mean, uh, the more the more customer data you have... Even if you're the, not stuck, it feels like the data, sh- like the analytics data shows that you won't churn as much. Like those customers are going to stay with you. Right, right. You probably have customers, you know. But and it's, there's something like, I don't know, fe- there's feels about it, too. Like, I don't know, because they have my data, I'm okay with spending more money or I think of them as fancier or trust them more or something. And I'm thinking of it in context of like Sean Wang stuff, about, you know, talking about how f- front end only tools just don't the potential for them to make money and the potential for them to have like a return for VC and things like that are so low because it's like yeah, I don't know, it's not valued as much and it's just easier to move away from them there's lots of like details to this but I wouldn't you know if somebody's going to do something cloudy these days <laughs> do data because there's always money there yeah, well, but I, I wonder if we're on the cusp, you know, I think we talked about it before, but snaplet.dev uh, is a cool little project. Um, but it's basically um, it's basically like a way to, um, it, it's like um, almost like WPDB Migrate Pro or something, <laughs> but for a Postgres server with, uh, you know, from the command line, you know. So, I mean, maybe we're at a 
a, a heyday for data with like Superbase and all these other tools where it's like, oh, you know what? I, I'm going to just move this over to Superbase, my weird, you know, <laughs> mm. <laughs> like custom homebrewed Postgres server. I'm going to just check it over uh, on Superbase now. And then, oh, you know what? Superbase going out of business? They're not, but I'm just like pretending, uh, you know, I'm going to move it over to here, you know? Like maybe we're on the cusp of that being a potential reality. Of data being, that would be nice, actually. Yeah. And what does that mean, though? Does it mean Postgres? Or like, because doesn't there needs to be like a format that is portable too that everybody kind of agrees is is good? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, there needs to be some kind of standard, you know. But it's non-trivial um, to go from you know schema list to. MySQL or whatever. That's they're not the same. Yeah, MySQL or Postgres to MySQL or Mongo to MySQL is different, right? But um, anyway, I just I just wonder. I wonder if there's a, a future here where you know you're able to kind of just fluidly, sort of just whatever, <laughs> send your data where where you. I don't know. Because I, I feel like yeah, right now the commoditization with, of these ideas is great. Yeah, because I feel like with like servers and hosting and stuff like that, it's like if I have a next site, I can deploy it in about ten different places pretty you easily. Can you know if I have a if I have a a Jekyll or an Eleventy site, same deal, ten different places, easy, pretty easy options to get up and going. Um, so as a consumer, that's really great for me. You know, I feel like these tools need to kind of start inventing. You know, like really good. And it's starting to be that way with like a little piece of node code that you expect a cloud runtime to handle for you. There might be a little bit of differences here and there, but for the most part are starting to be commoditized. Well, and I can't wait to be on Nux 3 because I could maybe be back on Netlify again because they'll just like spin up little edge functions for me. You know, for for mm. my API, like if I write the API in in Netlify, or in sorry Nux three, then Netlify can just like spin up the Edge function API server, and and it's got all the routes for my file based API. I just we're in a cool era, is what I want to say. I feel like we we meandered a lot to get here, but I feel like we're in a very cool era for. Uh, JavaScript um, for CSS. I mean, I guess this is your talk, huh? It's just <laughs> we're in a we're in a cool situation compared to yesteryears. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Split. That's Split.io. Split.io slash Shop Talk, actually. A very clever name for a product because it has to do with splitting actually like the users that use your website. So uh, uh, imagine a basic use case of that being something like A-B testing. Like I want to show some percentage of people this version of the website because I want to test the effectiveness of it without necessarily rolling it out to everybody. So test the effectiveness, meaning literally measure the impact that it has and see if it's kind of good or bad. But that same kind of technology then can be used for feature flags. That's essentially what you're doing. So you use their product to set up these feature flags, like these 100 people or these 25% of the user base have this feature flag, which you use their dashboard to do. And then it allows you to write like if else statements, essentially right in your own code base that says, you know, 
if this flag is turned on, deliver this piece of JavaScript or backend code or whatever it is. Otherwise, do this. It gives you that ability in your code, but it separates the ability to... It, you don't have to deploy in order to change the 100 people or the 25% or something. You manage that elsewhere, which ends up being a pretty nice experience. And then, again, it helps. It's, it's, it's for rolling things out. You have a brand new feature. You don't want to roll it out to everybody. You want to roll it out to a subset and get p- feedback from them. That's the whole point of feature flags. And Split helps you do that. So Split is the feature delivery platform you need to help execute these modern expectations and continuous and progressive delivery. Because if you're not delivering, you're falling behind. You and a team of 10 can, can, can create your first feature flags at split.io slash shop talk split.io slash shop talk create your first feature flags with a team of 10 thanks for the support well we were just talking about all this plat or like infrastructure and framework stuff but it's this it's a very similar story when you get to web platform yeah like we had jen on talking about all that stuff and it was really It was really great. One of those things was layers, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. I didn't realize they seem so new in this. They seem newer in my brain than even container queries. I don't know. We've been talking about container queries for so long, but it's actually not the case. Layers is actually everywhere. Like since like layer and, yeah, which <laughs> so, is very surprising to me. Everywhere yeah. meaning you know the Chromium stuff, the Safari stuff, and the Firefox stuff. That's amazing. <laughs> you yeah. can actually just start using at layer, and that changes some stuff. You have a blog post, modern alternatives to BEM, and you go off, and it's you know has some classic kind of Dave humor of inventing a bunch of funky at- acronyms, but they're all <laughs> they all actually kind of make sense. Including some layer-based ones, because it's like, do you need BEM as much or anything like it when you have layers? Uh, I mean, yeah, that was the thing that stood out to me uh, from the Gen episode, and I've been thinking about it since. It was just like, oh, like layers is like a folder, and and now CSS can put the styles in that folder. Uh, and then I, but I organize the folders. Like I can say, okay, this folder goes first, this one second, that one is the last one. And then, but I'm going to write my styles however I want. And just, you just chuck them in this folder. I, I'm tabbing, tagging this to put in a folder, you know? Um, and that's a terrible way to describe it, but on an audio podcast. But, um, but it's, it's interesting because you get control of when the styles apply. You know, we, we've done all this backflipping to like control specificity and application. But now you can just kind of make a, you could make a layer for every component in your design system and control the order in which they apply. (laughs) And, and it's always going to win, you know? Um, But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that that's different than like scope, but scope is cool too. But so I came up with uh, you want to hear my four, for modern methodologies uh, yeah this is perfect okay. for for podcasting what are yeah. the new four css acronyms that are in the category of bem but not bem okay uh and and i should say we want to keep some good things right we want to author in components right we want low specificity to avoid some collisions and we want like a bucket probably of 
utility classes or a very big bucket if you use Tailwind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have Cube, right? Uh, which is Andy Bell's thing, uh, composition, utilities, blocks, components, uh, and exceptions to those rules, like any kind of weird one-offs. I like this. This is kind of how I write code now. Uh, But let's say you wanted to go in on components, right? Like you're just like, all I care about is components. Well, if you use web components, you have like auto scoping built into that. Like it's it's actually way too <laughs> way too good, in my opinion. Uh, but like you have basically the host element, like Dave's button. Uh, you have elements inside the button: ULs, LIs, Ps, divs, uh, classes, just like HTML classes, state, and like inside your web component, you can just write as specific as you want because you know it's not going to bleed out everywhere. It's like you're you're the boss in that component. You can write as like it's the year two thousand, and you're touching CSS for the first yeah, time. If you want to style an li, you just go right ahead. Yeah. Just friggin' do it. Why not? How many li's are going to be one? Yeah, Great. just do it. Yeah, like uh, so. That's I call that hex. That's host element class state. Right. So you just the host component, the element inside there the class and the state. Mm-hmm. Then there's, if you want to reduce specificity entirely, which is what all those two tools did, you do wills. That's where is layer and scope. Wills, wills is pretty powerful. Scope's not out yet, I should say, but, uh, and, but, uh, right, right, right. So you use the where trick to nuke out the specificity of things because that that's like a new trick, right? That's what even something like Ben was trying to specifically trying to lower specificity. And now it's like, yeah, but we have this new trick now. So we don't yeah. really like need it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So like now we can like just say where whatever <laughs> component or component, my component where li or something and it's like very low specificity or whatever. I don't yeah. know. That's a bad example off the cuff. But anyway, so you you're able to like basically reduce specificity and like control now when styles apply. And then scope is control where it starts and stops applying, you know? So uh so when scope hits, that's gonna be a big thing. And then another the last one I had was uh GPC, which is based on a post you wrote in uh, uh, like 2012 called one, two, three. It was like, uh, how many style sheets should you have? Basically was the question. And you said, what, like global page and section? Like, Yeah, I mean, it's so funny to think that that had any longevity at all. But it was oh. like basically woofoo days of like, that's how we did it. We had, we had global styles. And then like, if you're in the, you know, the form builder, the form builder, of course, has its own styles, which are very different than if you're in this, I don't know, some the rule builder or something. Those don't need to share many of those page specific styles. Yeah. But like there's also like there's a tree, right? So like, a, I don't know, if you need a third one, the third one could be a very specific page. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. Like it, it's just, you know, you could just be as specific as you want. But, you know, in layer land, you can have global page component folders. And the global one's always the first one. Page comes after that. And 
I don't know, component or section or whatever you want to call it, uh, is the last one. Yeah, you're controlling your specificity. It's actually even better because there's in the one, two, or three scenario, sure, there's three style sheets, but none of them have any enforced strength. Right, right. Whereas this does. Yeah, and and like you can also author this however you want, you know, like, um, (laughs) I don't, you know, on the about page, you could actually change a, a global style if you wanted, you know, like just chuck it in there and then there's sort of like no consequence, you know, cause it's only happening on that page or you just author, you edit, you're saying I'm in the, this page. So whatever, make the body background pink on this page. Always, you know, this is, I know what I'm doing. So yeah, that's I wonder this. if it encourages almost a, you know, cause the, the, the idea of just not loading a CSS file on a page that doesn't use it felt good at the time because you're like, I don't know, then there's no risk of any bleeding over because I'm not even loading that other style sheet. But it meant that you'd be breaking up actual style sheets into smaller chunks. And I think that has not shaken out yet. Like with layer, it might mean that encouraging everything being in one smash together giant style sheet is good because you still have lots of control over what's being applied where and then you get the benefit of one file being cached between all pages but like (laughs) unfortunately technology has almost worked the opposite direction and they're like who cares how many css files you load load 30 of them who cares you know yeah yeah no i mean uh, we kind of went through like an era where everyone you know we're optimizing the heck out of CSS, you know, like just critical CSS, all this, you know, um, I wanted to call out a post this week from, uh, uh, Harry, uh, over on CSS wizardry. Um, and it was basically like <laughs> critical CSS, not so fast. Um, I just read that. Yeah. And, uh, it's really interesting cause he, he's basically like, it, it's an issue, but like, make sure you, this is your bottleneck. Like, don't worry about critical CSS until it's your bottleneck. And I thought that was really amazing advice, you know, because it is, it's heaps of technical debt. <laughs> so solve yeah, the heaps. other stuff first before you like try to like get all the styles just for that page to render in the head, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed this post, and it's rife with foot guns. I think I, I've just never been like the world's biggest fan of it. I was always like, if it can be really automated, then like, uh, okay, do it. And then yeah. even in those situations, I could find little problems with it. Where you'd go to some page where it thought it had the right critical CSS, but it didn't, which actually led to more jank rather than less. Mm-hmm. Was just you know. So that's a pretty bad foot con. It's not like, oops, I didn't get the critical CSS wrong. I'm like, I tried to do critical CSS and made it worse. Yeah. <laughs> so it's no. just like, screw it. Of course, but a performance tools all day are dinging you for not doing it. For sure. Yeah, Lighthouse is super pissed you didn't didn't do this, you know, but it's it's really hard to do, especially across a whole entire site. So and, and for me it's like an N plus one problem, basically. Like or, or on i'm not even sure how in notation works but but it's the idea of like your critical css needs to be your header plus the next thing on the page more or less right like the or and maybe a sidebar if you have a sidebar layout so it's like 
and that can change radically based on anything that shows, you know, for how many templates you have in your website, you know, is it the product template? Okay. You need all the product crap and selectors and form crap up in the top on the product template. Oh, you, you have a checkout form. You need to make the list and the product and the forms and the, you know, coupon yeah. code up there. Oh, you have, you know, like it's just, it's so like either, but you could also just do the header and maybe that's a great first step, you know, but, but now you still need to block somebody somewhere to get the rest of the page rendered. So what yeah. do you do? Uh, I guess I blocked the page. And so maybe I should have just blocked the page the whole time. So anyway, it's a really good article. It's really thought provoking. I, I, I think there's still super value in critical CSS, but I, I think the, the idea of like, don't worry about it until it's your bottleneck, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's pretty sensible advice. Really. I mean, think of 99.9% of websites on the internet do not do this. <laughs> They just they let the CSS be a blocking resource, and I don't think it's all that night and day when a website decides to implement this. I think probably more sites implement it to their detriment than it solves. You know, there's probably a very small amount of websites in the world that would feel slow, but then they did critical CSS and now are fast. <laughs> yeah. I don't, right. want to, I don't want to talk you out of it, but implementing it is very difficult. An example, a r- real-world example is on CSS Tricks, uh, the Jetpack Boost plugin offered critical CSS. And it was, in the f- typical fashion of Jetpack, it was a switch. You just turn it on. There is no configuration whatsoever, which to me actually is really cool that sounds amazing, you know. That's how easy I want critical CSS to be, because me hand managing it in my brain, what's critical and what's not, or having some special CSS syntax or some automation tool that's trying to figure it out by analyzing the DOM, all those are a major turnoff to me. So the fact that it used magic somehow to figure out which it needed to do was was appealing to me. So I'd turn it on, and it really did a, like a ninety-five percent good job. You know, okay. it's like, oh, that's yeah. good. good for you. Now my lighthouse scores are now higher because I flipped the switch on. But there'd be some pages that you could go to, like a sub page that had pretty different CSS, like what would be the second of my one, two, three thing. Yeah. And it used this, it didn't differentiate, it didn't make different critical CSS for tis, like the tis, middle pages tis. of the higher. Yeah. yeah, right? So then you'd visit that page, and it would be missing some critical CSS that was above the fold, and it would cause that jankiness, because now the rest of the CSS is essentially lazy loaded, right? So when the lazy loaded CSS hit, it would change some stuff above the fold and be like, whoa, what happened? You know, now, It would all happen pretty <laughs> fast, but it was anti the goal. And now you have CLS, cumulative layout shift, because that happened, and right. that's a in Lighthouse 2. So unless yeah. you threaded that needle perfectly, man, uh, you you uh, you you didn't win. So right. clowns, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So maybe there'd be a solution to be like, oh, I don't know, create unique critical CSS on these eight kinds of templates and anything that they're responsible for or something. Well, I wonder sure. if you could like too like i mean and it's all probably fine until what you do the special christmas 
episode or the Christmas theme, you know, and you put a little Christmas tree in the navigation. Guess what? It didn't work. Critical CSS did not pick up on that. And now, yeah. Yeah, Exactly. You have to remember to regenerate it, which is maybe that's part of your build process, but probably not. If like maybe like this is a edge function kind of thing too, like maybe it could run a critical CSS test on it, but I don't think it's going to do that fast enough. Does that make sense? I don't think it's going to, like a critical CSS tool can't return in under two milliseconds in order to, or let's say 200 milliseconds to get the page back fast enough, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I, now you're putting the blocking on the server, which is good, but like you're going to slow down your TTFB time to first byte, which you also get dinged for. So uh, anyway, good thought provoking post. This ain't going to get so, solved anywhere soon. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Harry. Good job. Good job. Um, let's see. Do we have time for one we or two? Do one question. It is, okay. after all, a question and answer podcast. Clive Ward, Cron writes in, uh, given time restraints of being a full-time employee, husband, father, am I better off focusing in on one project and adding a lot of bells and whistles to it, or should I spend my time making many smaller projects as I can? Uh, quantity versus quality situation. Which way do I go? So, oh my God, both. <laughs> do both. Um, you know, this is tough. I I, I think strategically, um, I think I think the quantity is the play. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like you have to, it's kind of like the investment thing where it's like one out of 10 startups fail or something like that. One out of 10 of your ideas are going to fail. Okay, so, I can see it. Yeah. Does that make sense? So like you you got to make 10 side projects and maybe one is cool. So um I, I it, but but when I say make side projects, I don't mean like you know, work your fingers to their bleeding. I mean like just kind of etch out the idea and get it up there and see if somebody says that's cool enough I'd use it, you know? Yeah, um, I like that. The reason I said both is cuz if you only ever did first crack little projects and you never like got to round two on any of them you're still going to get a breadth of experience and that's going to be great because you can choose different technologies and all this stuff there's probably more benefit there but it also means that because you haven't spent time maintaining it you just don't get that feel which is a very different mode of work you've you'll probably have never you'll probably never write a migration (laughs) yeah you know, yeah. so like, oh, you just never had that because you've just never had to maintain a project for a while. You just you, like your concept of what technical debt is will be limited because you'll be like, well, I don't know. I just move. I just c- c- delete that GitHub repo. That's how I deal with technical debt. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, and I think, too, like having one applying your hand to one thing is I think there's a lot of value into that. So I, I'll undercut what I said before, you know, I, and there's mental energy too. Talking about spoons, how many spoons do you got? You got ten spoons free, uh, or one spoon? You know, uh, I think like if it's if it's like a something you just want to do, like just to like get this idea out of your head, or or see if it works, or and you know you got to kind of put a lot of work into it, or um, you know, there's can be something relaxing about 
you know what? I know this is my side project. I'm not going to come up with any other side projects or one at a time. This is my thing. This is my, I got one spoon. (laughs) That's that spoon. It depends on how strongly you feel about it. Right. If you know that that's your thing, you're like, feel very strongly that this is a good idea. That's easier. But if you're like, you know what, I'm going to make a crud app for cat litter boxes or something like just just because it's just it's some idea that you got and hey maybe you know yeah build it and move on yeah well who is it is somebody in our discord i, I want to say it's one of the andes uh there's 15 andes but um uh but uh has a like a a what is it, Andy Ford? But uh, has a Lego, like a brick builder website, and it's basically like share your your Lego creation, like kind yeah. of like an Instagram for Legos. Awesome niche, very cool. Like he's passionate about it, likes those. Uh, do that, just just do that. Like that's your idea. Like do it, you know. <laughs> like like that's a really great idea because it's like parlays into another hobby you kind of like or whatever, you know, maybe turning your hobbies into work is actually a bad thing too. So maybe think about that, but like, you know, you're, you're at least able to be like, you know, this is like, you know, this is an idea I have. And, you know, every time you sit down at the computer, you can make one idea better. That's kind of cool. So, um, and then there's not, you know, you're not under 10 backlogs. You're under just one <laughs> backlog that you created, you know? So uh, that's what I'd Pretty say. Pretty cool. Yeah, good luck, Clive. You probably can't do wrong at all just spending a little time plucking away at projects, whether it's either direction, really. But, yeah, I like Dave's analysis better. You know, a little error on the the quantity while they're, while they're babies. Yeah, do some quantity, find out which one's good, then go quality, so. Maybe that's it. So, all right, we should wrap it up. Thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcast or choice. Be sure to start our favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And join us in the Discord, patreon.com slash Shop Talk Show. Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Hmm. Shop Talk Show.com.